maybe I'll start tonight with a, a brief uh, tale. And this is a teaching story that I have found in a number of different traditions. There, it's about a monastery that had fallen upon hard times and the abbot and four other monks, that's all that was left. And they were each over 70. It was a really a dying order. In the deep woods nearby lived a rabbi who was known for his wisdom. He lived in a little hut. So the ra abbot visited him and asked him for any advice that might help to save the monastery. And the rabbi commiserated, but he said he had no advice. And they prayed together and meditated together and embraced. And before parting, the rabbi said, I'm sorry, I really don't have any advice. The only thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. Pretty cryptic. So the abbot returns and he says, well, sorry guys, the rabbi couldn't offer any help, but he did tell us that um, the Messiah is one of us. So in the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks pondered this, and as they contemplated, they began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance that <laughs> one among them might be the Messiah. And then on the off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. And people that came by noticed the changing atmosphere and the radiance that seemed to emanate out of the monastery. And more and more came by, and over time with, there was increased numbers, and they were inspired by the old monks and asked to join. So within a few years, the monastery once again became a thriving order and a vibrant center of light and spirituality in the realm. So what are we to make of this story? And as I mentioned, I've, I've heard it from the Sufi tradition. I've heard it in all these different traditions. It's one of those kind of archetypal stories with this really simple message of what's possible when we consider that the life that's living through us and each of us is really sourced in the divine that the, the radiance and love of the sacred is really shining through every eyes that look back at us. And what if we walk through the world that way? What would happen? It's the, it's the essence of all spiritual traditions, really, to recognize our wholeness, to recognize who we really are. And it's very clear that the suffering that's described in all different kinds of language, the Buddhists like the word dukkha, suffering, um, mistaken identity, that we suffer because our sense of who we are is contracted, that we move through our days with a story about who we are that is just a fragment, a distorted fragment of the mystery and truth of what's here. I began uh, the book Radical Acceptance with a story that some of you might remember that really had an effect on me. I was teaching a retreat up at the Insight Meditation Society and one of the women there said that she had, um, oh, about two years earlier 
been with her mother uh, during her passing and she said that her mother had lived her life in a really neurotic way and in her passing she kind of was going in and out of a coma and when she came out she had this incredibly lucid moment where she looked into her daughter's eyes and she said, you know, all my life I thought there was something wrong with me. And that was it. She closed her eyes, she went back into a coma and died a few hours later. And to the woman at the retreat this was a parting gift, as you can imagine that she could really sense how much of her mother's life had been imprisoned by the basic storyline, something's wrong with me. How much her chronic worrying and fretting and ways of distancing for, um, from others and all of it all came out of this fundamental sense of not okayness. And she resolved not to let that be the life star story that shaped her life. It was a wake-up. Now for some of us it might be that, that that story of something's wrong is not as acute or pervasive. And yet to any degree that we're living in a story of a of a limited self, that not okay, need to be different, something's wrong, our capacity to really savor this life, to really love, to serve, is cramped. It takes our energy, it tires us, it distracts us. We get organized around trying to prove we're okay rather than breathing and being here and really just having our hearts be tender. We have to protect ourselves because we're not okay. In more recent months, one of my most active reflections has become this inquiry, what story am I believing right now? I'll just add, just especially in moments where I'm feeling in some way self-conscious or irritated or um, anxious. There's something, some story that's going on about how, how it all is. And if I can recognize the story, just the recognizing opens up some space. There's a kind of possibility of connecting to a larger truth. It's like that the Messiah is one of us. It's like that possibility of something larger opens up. I'm no longer hitched to the idea of a small self. Just imagine, just imagine what it would be like to really not believe something's wrong. Can you glimmer that? Just just a sense of that there's not the encumbrance of a story that something's wrong. The effect it would be if we really, really trusted in some basic way what we are. Not thinking that we're perfect creatures of form and always doing things perfectly. That's just, that's just putting in another program or story. 
but trusting in a deep way that the awareness that's listening right now, that the heart that's feeling, that this wakefulness has a purity and it's really the source of what we are. Imagine if you don't believe something's wrong, the effect it would have on relationships with others. Just that open-heartedness that's possible, the spontaneity. So this is what I'd like to kind of keep exploring tonight. Um, I, um, I've been kind of in my mind sensing this seeing through the stories as a kind of deprogramming. Not in the sense of deprogram a bad story and replace it with a good, I'm a terrific person story. Not that at all. That's not what we're talking about. But that we ha live in these ideas or constructions about who I am and who you are and how things are. And if we can deprogram in the sense of not get caught in or identified with, then there's space for the truth of what we are to express. There's space for us to live from a deeper place. The medicine, what really frees up that programming is exactly what we're doing together, which is this kind of arriving again here. Like, just as, just as I say that, what does it mean to you, right here, to go beyond ideas or words, to pause? And there's some radical aliveness that's here that gives us the space, the presence, to kind of see through whatever limiting story our attention was hitched to. So hereness. Hereness is the place of discovery of what's true. So as we listen tonight, just as a way to keep coming back, you might just listen to the sound of the bell as an invitation into hereness. Just listen. And in an immediate way, just to sense, so what is happening here? Can I let this be just as it is? Now the challenge is, as you'll notice, as we have this humongous conditioning to leave what's here, and to manipulate what's here. That's another way of leaving. In other words, to do anything but stay and let be. That's our conditioning. And sometimes I like to just reflect on the day, today, the day you've just lived. And, I, and this is an invitation, just to reflect for a moment and sense how it was lived. Were there many moments of presence, not to judge, but just to notice. I don't mean dazzling presence, although it might have been. 
but just simplicity of, hmm, hot, or here's this breath, or the color of this person's eyes, the sound of this voice, or this feeling, this squeeze in my heart right now. When it's nighttime, do we let the cricket sound just really sweep through? Can we listen? Our primary exit strategy is thinking. So we're off in these thoughts as Ajahn Buddhadasa, one teacher, was asked to describe this world and his response was, lost in thought. That's it, you know. So, like the woman in the story that's always, there was always something wrong with me, her exit strategy was to try to constantly control people, judge herself, judge others, fix, manipulate, always worrying, always planning, off in thought. And to some degree, if we're sensing deficiency in ourself or that something wrong feeling, if we're sensing that, our primary strategy is going to have our mind get busy on how to correct things. And in those moments, we're not here. Our senses are not wide open. Utterly awake, senses wide open. Utterly open, non-fixating awareness. Instead, our awareness has contracted and gone down a track of whatever worrying or planning. And so then we look and sense, well, how is it that this is the universal recognition of everyone that starts meditating, that it's really hard because we're given these instructions to notice what's happening here and open and relax and stay with. And what happens? We're off over and over again somewhere else. And it's part of our evolutionary design that this is the way it is. We are rigged this way. We're rigged to have a perception of separation. It's just part of our design. That doesn't mean it's the end of the story. It's part of our design to realize that we feel separate and in that realizing to come rest again in this wholeness, this awareness that's aware. But in the meanwhile, we get a kind of developmental arrest where we get caught in thinking we're a separate self and because of our thinking mind, which is our primary strategy of protecting and enhancing that self, we live in a lot of stories about that self and that starts defining our reality. So we're vigilant and we're anxious and our thoughts are driven by that and it's, again, when I say part of our design, think of the the mouse or the squirrel or the deer, you know, it's like if they're laid back, it's a big problemo, right? You know, it's like a survival thing. So with humans, we are designed to have to protect ourselves and use thinking for that. And there's great suffering if we get arrested in that and don't realize that we're more than the self that we've taken ourselves to be. I've described it here as a spacesuit self, that we come onto this earth and we take on these strategies to try to make it through. 
And we all have these well-honed strategies, you know, of trying to look good and have others' approval and avoid getting judged and judging others and controlling. We all have it. And the sad thing about the spacesuit self is that when we're identified with the strategies, we forget who's here. We forget. So what are these thoughts that are so much our, our mechanism for surviving? You might just for a moment just check in and um, you know, just take a few breaths, close your eyes. And you might bring to mind uh, some event or activity that's coming up soon for you. And it might be something you're anticipating with pleasure or with anxiety. Just something that's going to be happening in the next few days that you might be preparing for or might not, but you have in your map of the future. And sense what this will involve, what it might be like. what your plans are around this. And then just to recognize that this sense of the future are thoughts. And what are they? What really are these thoughts about the future? That they're images, perhaps sound bites, maybe a mental story. It might be a fragmented still shot, like a camera still shot, or it might be a rolling film. There might be images with feeling tones. To sense this as a kind of story or a mental movie of images and sound bites going on inside and that hundreds of others are having a similar kind of show going on right now. Just to sense that. Images, sound bites, some feeling tones. Just let yourself relax back right here. Just notice the difference between any thought and the actuality of hereness. Let this be your refuge. To be mindful of thoughts is the pathway of relaxing back to this here-ness. 
So thoughts are representations of the world and they have varying degrees of accuracy and of usefulness but they're no closer to the real thing than a photo of a tree is actually the tree with the texture of the bark and the feeling and look of the leaves and the wind. It's just a representation, something pointing to something. It's one of the, some of you might know, I had a t-shirt for many years and on it it said, meditation, it's not what you think. <laughs> so it's not, it can't be, you know. Even in terms of surviving and thriving, thoughts are sometimes useful, sometimes not. There's one of my favorite cartoons, has this guy driving into the desert and there's a sign saying, you and your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, you know? <laughs> I thought that was really useful. So the Buddha basically, one of my favorite lines from the Buddha is that people with opinions, with strong opinions, just go around bothering one another. You know, that we have these ideas and these stories. And of course, our opinions and ideas and stories wreak the greatest havoc on ourselves often. And again, when I said we were talking about deprogramming, the stories we have that most clutch us, that keep us from spontaneity, that keep us from enjoying and relaxing in a moment, from taking risks, they wreak havoc on our lives. So, what is the difference between wholesome thoughts that promote our well-being and thoughts that create suffering is one simple, profound thing, which is the thoughts that create suffering have got our identity hitched, which goes to, which means that when we're thinking them, when we're lost in them, our whole sense of who we are has contracted and we've lost sight, we've lost sight of that hereness, of that awareness, of heart, of mystery. We've lost sight of it. And that doesn't mean we can't have thoughts and go in and out and for a little bit be really with a certain idea. But when we're habitually immersed in thought forms that contract our mood and our sense of being, that suffering. There was an article in the Post a few days ago on how when we get caught in these states where we're believing badness or believing something that's threatening and our biochemistry has been activated, we have no access to any sense of a reality that's other. That becomes our universe. We get subsumed in it. When it happens regularly, that becomes the shape of our life. Again, you might just take the, let the attention go inward and just reflect for a moment. Just be here. Feel your breath. Feel the life that's here. Now let this word enter into the atmosphere of your brain, the word trouble. 
And you just say the word mentally, whisper it, trouble. And sense what it means to you, trouble. Trouble. You can kind of say it with a vibe, trouble. What's that mean? What's that like? What happens? Then try another word, kindness. Just whisper kindness. A few times, whisper it over and over and sense what happens. Just drop, drop the words, drop the ideas. Just get the knack of letting go into here-ness. If that's all you leave with tonight is, okay, what's happening here? These sounds. These sensations. Letting life be as it is. The Buddha taught that we are shaped and created and led by our thoughts. Our habit of thinking creates our life experience. Now, what's important to recognize is that our thoughts are driven by our stories that we tell ourselves about how it all is, basic beliefs about ourselves and the world. So what I'd like to propose is this inquiry that you try tonight, and I'm going to continue this next week, of, well, what story am I telling myself now? Because you can find out about how the fearful stories and the wanting stories completely imprison us. That when we're in the grip of a story of something's wrong with me or something's wrong with you, they drive us into behaviors, into other thoughts, into body states where we lose the connection with our wholeness, with who we are. Our stories generally are something's wrong, and then they're seeking evidence to prove themselves. It might be that the evidence that something's wrong is how we feel we're appearing in the world. That as soon as we don't feel like we're looking attractive enough or strong enough or together enough, in other words, imperfect, not together, that fuels the story of, I'm basically not okay. One woman wrote, My ancestors wandered lost in the wilderness for 40 years because even in biblical times, men would not stop to ask for directions. <laughs> so there's a sense of our pride that we won't ask for help, that it's like it's not okay to be vulnerable. So that's part of the story of I'm not okay, anything with our appearance. We, rule, we use as evidence of something's wrong when we don't feel good inside. In other words, fear comes up 
And that's evidence something's wrong with me. Depression comes up. Physical sickness comes up. It's so amazing. Aging and death happen. And in some way they're evidence that something's wrong with this self. The things that happen to every being on the planet, aging, sickness, death, something's wrong with me. It's a mistake, it's embarrassing. Isn't that interesting? It's embarrassing that it happens. So this something's wrong with me happens when we're stressed and we don't cope the way we think we should. It happens when we get a bad response from others. But the most basic story that we're living in is I am a separate self, stuff is happening to me or I'm the doer. And whenever we're living in that story, separate self, the doer, the fixer, the victim, notice it, there's a need to protect. Whenever there's that story, there's some need to protect, to show, to prove. Whenever there's that experience, the thoughts that circle are all about what we want and what we fear. Your beliefs become your thoughts, your thoughts become your words, your words become your actions, your actions become your habits, your habits become your character, and your character becomes your destiny. Let me say that again, this is Mahatma Gandhi, because I think this is so important. If we can realize how our thoughts and the believing our thoughts end up creating our life experience, we get pretty motivated to wake up out of the trance of thinking. Your beliefs become your thoughts, your thoughts become your words, your words become your actions, your actions become your habits, your habits become your character, your character becomes your destiny. In the most basic way, if our habit is to be lost in our stories and our thoughts, then our destiny is that we're disconnected from the aliveness of these bodies and these hearts and this mystery that's always here. John O'Donohue says we're trying to manage things so much that it covers over the mystery that's here. So, as I mentioned, the forgetting, the getting caught, is really part of our evolutionary design. We all take ourselves as to be separate. It's like Rumi said, whatever comes into being drunkenly forgets its way back, you know. So we forget. And the spiritual path is really about recognizing we're forgetting, and usually the big cue, suffering, right? How do we know we're forgetting? If you feel suffering, if you feel a sense of distance, uptightness, fear, lack of intimacy, there's a story going on. 
What are you believing? So the good news is that even though it's our absolute evolutionary design to forget and get stuck and be lost in thought, it's part of our evolutionary equipment to be conscious and recognize that and reconnect with the field of consciousness itself a remember, reconnect with a vastness which is the vastness that's listening right now that pays attention and notices sensations and aliveness and tenderness we have that capacity to reconnect with wholeness in every spiritual tradition I know there is a kind of training in some form or another to wake up out of the trance of thoughts to recognize the stories that we're living in and wake up out of them and it might be the Japanese using Zen Buddhists using koans it might be through Sufi dancing and it might be through prayer and it might be through a quieting kind of meditation I know the um, in Tibet, the lamas, and this is just one way, have this um, ritual where they'll go to the high plains, these great high plains in Tibet, and they'll jump around and shriek and go wildly, just kind of go wildly crazy and laugh, and, and they'll do anything but have their attention fixate on thoughts. It's a complete wildness that they invite in. Somebody sent me, I, I told them, they said, here's our Western form of awakening out of the trance of thoughts and this is a it's a list that says how to keep a healthy level of insanity it says at lunchtime sit in your parked car and point a hairdryer at passing cars to see if they slow down <laughs> if somebody, every time someone asks you to do something ask them if they want fries with that <laughs> put decaf in the coffee maker for three weeks once everyone has gotten over their caffeine addictions switch to espresso in the memo field of all your checks, write for sexual favors. <laughs> Finish all your sentences with, in accordance to the prophecy. Specify that your drive-through order is to go. Sing along at the opera. There's a few more. I'm not going to read you all of them. Uh, when leaving the zoo, start running toward the parking lot yelling, run for your lives, they're loose, they're loose. <laughs> I'll read you one more. When the money comes out of the ATM, scream, I won, I won, third time this week. You know? <laughs> we have our Western ways of doing things. So every spiritual tradition, there are practices. And in some way, the practices are a kind of deprogramming of this addiction of thinking. This deprogramming of these kind of core beliefs that we're living inside of and there's different ways we can do it but they have the same common denominator of hereness, of coming back here whether it's dancing or praying singing, meditating, hereness in the practices that we are exploring together the instructions are, okay, if you notice that the mind has gone off in thoughts, just pause. Don't fight it. 
One friend says, if you are trying to fight your thoughts, you'll be fighting for the rest of your life. You know, the mind is like, any, like an organ that just secretes thoughts like enzymes. It, it just happens. It's not to stop the thoughts. It's to not be lost in them and believe them. It's to have, get the knack of noticing, oh, thinking, and arriving again in this field that's non-conceptual and yet immediately aware. Non-conceptual, yet completely intimate, senses wide awake. Take a moment again, if you will, just to let this be real for you. Just come here fully. Just listening to and feeling the whole moment. When a thought arises, some comment or some image, And you notice, just sense the difference between any thought, these mind movies, and this radical presence, this mystery that's right here. talk a little about how we can deepen this arriving, how we can get more awake so that when the stories, especially the sticky ones, arise, we can begin to develop this capacity to, rather than be lost in them and believe them, ask this question, so what am I believing? What story? And reestablish presence. The training begins with really learning what it means to have the senses awake right here. And what I'd encourage with every sitting is to take some time to very intentionally wake up your senses. Sweep through the body. You can do it right now. Just feel your hands from the inside. Soften the belly a little. Feel the breath. And instantly there's more of a degree of hereness than there was. So we begin with that, with an embodied presence. Then there's an intention. And the intention is when there is a drifting off into thought that as much as we can to notice it, 
and reawaken in the moment. So this intention comes from a valuing presence. It's like a choice. I'd rather be here than often thoughts or ideas. Now just to say that um, there's one man that did a retreat some years ago and he went through all the ups and downs. I mean, he went through phases where he just felt like he was battling his demons and being, you know, just ripped up by fear. And then he went through times where he'd be walking in the grass and feel the breeze and it would be peace and bliss. And he went through self-doubt and he went through the whole deal. And his comment at the end of the retreat was that the joy is in getting real. It wasn't in the bliss or rapture or peace of any given moment or it wasn't in, you know, the fear, the content, the weather. It was in the realness of choosing presence over leaving, over drifting, over being lost in thought. There is a way in which the more we wake up the more we touch that presence, the more we value it and our commitment deepens. So for me, one of the realizations is it's just more interesting to be here than in any way that I exit. It doesn't mean it feels better. You know, this body-mind goes through all the different levels of, of discomfort and fear and doubt. and It's just more interesting to notice and let be what's real than any manipulation of it. Interesting. And interesting is a deep thing for me because it has the ring of truth. It's more real. So this, the practices we do establish this awake in the senses over and over again, listening to and feeling just what's here have the intention to know when you're off in stories and thoughts and pause and re-arrive. One of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, says, you know, at some point in his practice he started saying to himself, do I want to think or be free? You know, this is either our proposition. And again, I want to say that this doesn't mean there aren't really valuable, absolutely valuable uh, essential, necessary, beautiful, wonderful things about our capacity to think. It's just that such a large percentage of our time we're lost in thoughts that are not bringing us happiness and freedom. We're lost in thoughts that have under them stories that something's wrong. Can we wake up from that? So then the question comes in, well, what do we do when the stories are really charged and really we want to stay in them because what's here is so unpleasant or so difficult to stay with? I know for myself that often when I'm stressed, like I have too many things to do in too short a period of time kind of stressed, um, and I'll speed up and it's very hard to convince myself that you know, it's better to pause than to keep on planning and strategizing and rehearsing and so on. And then I just, if I ask the question, okay, so what story am I believing? The story I'm believing is this is a small separate self that needs to accomplish and perform X, Y, and Z in order to do things well so she will be accepted and not let people down and not be a failure and then be rejected. It's that kind of thing. It comes down to perform or be rejected, 
the fear of unlove, okay? If I can ask the question, what story am I believing, and see this construction of a self that needs to do to be loved, which is, I'm sure, a number of you are inside going, yeah, I know that one. If I can pause enough to see it, the deprogramming has started. The identification with the story has begun to dissolve. What story am I believing? Or who am I taking myself to be? That's another similar question. It's a choosing to be here, to recognize the story and then saying, how does this feel? Can I be with this? Can I let this be? Before class, um, I was told about a person who's very dear to me, who I love, who's dying, who'll probably be dying in the next few days. And so meditating, my thoughts would start rolling on this. And then the inquiry was exactly the same. So what's the story? And it's of, of, of loss. And then, can I let this be and really let this be? And that means a willingness just to feel heartbreaking, sadness, sorrow. And yet in the what's happening and letting be, there is rather than a self kind of thinking and having a loss happen to her, there's a reopening to a space that really has room for the currents of the sorrows. We take our thoughts personally. We, we have these thoughts and we think they're ours. One of the instructions I like the best at retreats is to imagine there's a loudspeaker and everybody's thoughts are being transmitted over the loudspeaker. And we've done this at retreats. We've had these, just this sense of everybody in the room, their thoughts are all just being, you know, blasted through. It makes it easier. You know, or else imagine that everything you're thinking is really the thoughts of the person sitting right in front of you. You know, we just, we own things. We think they're ours. So I started tonight with the story of the Messiah is one of us. And when we really look at our stories, there is huge swaths of our time that we're living in an idea of I'm less than or you're less than. And the inquiry, is the Messiah one of us or who are you? is a way of deprogramming that story and opening ourselves to who's really living through each of us. In the letting go of the small story, we reclaim the life that's here. We get to live it. There's a um, quote from Joseph Campbell. He said, what do we really want out of life anyway? He says, we don't want to understand life. We want to experience it as richly as we possibly can. He said, I don't want to pass from this domain without knowing I've lived it soulfully, as fully and with as much feeling and caring as I can. Any moment we're in a story of limited self, limited other, 
we have pulled away from the mystery and the fullness that's here. I'd like to read you from Mary Oliver. She says, when it's over, when it's over, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. So let's just sit for a few more moments together. Very, very short sitting. But in this arriving right here, feel your intention, your choosing of what's real. The intention to wake up from the trance of thinking. Senses awake, listening. feeling what's here, not resisting in any way. From this place of presence, you can, in a gentle way, explore any place in your life where there's a tangle. Perhaps there's a time recently when you felt in some way stuck, reactive, angry, judgmental, hurt, afraid, just tight or distant. You can sense into that experience may have been in relationship with another person or work and just inquire what story am I believing when I'm stuck? when I'm angry at somebody or judgmental of them when I'm afraid what am I believing? Is there a story of an aggrieved self that's being mistreated? Of a bad other that's not loving us well? Of a failing self? Of a self that will be rejected? Just gently aware and recognizing, ah, story. And then open right to where the feelings are, just breathing with whatever is right here, in this body, in this heart, 
Just breathe with it, whatever you're experiencing right now. You might be tired or hot, sad or peaceful. Noticing what's happening, letting it be as it is. What would it be like if you didn't believe something was wrong? When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. May all beings awaken to trust the love and presence that is their essence. May we all touch a natural and great peace. May there be peace here and everywhere. May all beings awaken and be free. Namaste. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.